Welcome to Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy Top 200 Drugs Podcast. This podcast is produced by the pharmacy faculty members to supplement study material for students learning the top 200 drugs. We're hoping that our real-life clinical pearls and discussions from practicing pharmacists will help you study for your next drug quiz. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Week 10 of Roslyn Franklin University's Top 200 Drugs Podcast, Spring Edition. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. And I'm Dr. Weatherton. And initially, Dr. Weatherton and I were going to talk about women's health. I mean, who could be better experts? But we figured we should probably have some female professors join in the conversation. Good idea. So joining now, it's Dr. Patel. And Dr. Petty. So to kick things off, we're going to start with conjugated estrogen. And there's two different brand names to know with this product, Premarin and Senestin. Where does Premarin come from? Premarin might be the best brand name on the market. So Premarin as a preparation, comes from pregnant mare's urine. And a mare is a female horse. Pregnant mare's urine, Premarin. So because of that, some patients prefer to use the non-horse urine variety of tablet, which is Senestin, which is of plant-based origin. So what are conjugated estrogens used for? They're mainly uh, used for hormone replacement therapy, so obviously to treat the symptoms of menopause. And those symptoms can be hot flashes or uh, vaginal atrophy, and even symptoms of vaginal atrophy leading to atrophic vaginitis. And so these are essentially just estrogens. So menopause is a deficiency of estrogen, and we just replace it with estrogen, right? You got it right. So it seems like this should be pretty safe, right? Because all we're doing is we're giving back the estrogens that a woman in their menopausal age is missing, right? If only it was that easy, Dr. Kane. So uh, conjugated estrogen actually carry a lot of box warnings. Uh, we do see higher risk of invasive breast cancer, higher risk of uterine cancers, and also higher risk of stroke, thromboembolic events such as DVTs and PEs, and myocardial infarctions. That seems way more serious than what I was expecting. Especially when you consider that these are used essentially just for symptomatic resolution. So really, it's a, it's a big decision on whether or not you want to remove a couple of inconvenient symptoms for the sake of putting a patient at all these risks. Exactly. And you always have to consider the side effects of the medication. Just like being a teenage girl again, you got those enlarged breasts, vaginal bleeding, nausea, headache, and fluid retention, just like in your teens, good times. So talking about different dosage forms, we have conjugated estrogen, especially Premarin, available in pills and cream form. The cream is vaginal cream. Senestin is mainly available in pills. So our next product is ethinylestradiol slash norethindrone. The brand name is Loestrin FE, but there's multiple products under the Loestrin name. Now what does the FE in Loestrin FE stand for? Pull out your elemental chart, Dr. Rutherton. FE stands for the iron. Sure. So why would we need to supplement iron in birth control pills, which are generally given to menstruating females? Uh, Very good question, Dr. Rutherton, because menstruation uh, would result in loss of blood. And so to avoid any anemic symptoms or possibly anemia, um, we're just replacing iron. So these are combination estrogen and progesterone products. 
and they're used as birth controls. Um, and the way they, these products work is they um, suppress the hypothalamus and pituitary production of those stimulating enzymes such as GnRH, LH, as well as FSH. And so what happens later on is it eventually inhibits the ovulation and also makes the uterus um, less prone to carrying a pregnancy. So are these very effective? If you're taking it according to the FDA-approved label, they're believed to be about 98% effective. And something just to point out, when you're hearing people talk about 98% effective, 85% effective, and things of that sort, realize those are under controlled conditions in certain patient populations that were told how to use it. So then you're thinking about your lay population and people that aren't really knowledgeable on these types of things, just kind of assume a little bit lower or just take the approach of educating them further, assuming they don't know those types of things. So I know at least with Loestrin, many of the products have the number 24 in them, like Loestrin 24, Loestrin 24FE. What does that 24 mean? So the 24 actually refers to the number of pills in there that are active. So in some birth controls, you have all active pills. and other ones, there's only a certain number. So for this one, there's 24 active pills and then four days of inactive pills, or in this case, iron. So why would we have any inactive pills in a birth control product? Why would we just start over a new pack? Yeah, maybe they'd be 100% effective if you just put all active pills in there. See, we need a man to make one of these products. <laughs> yeah, why didn't they think of that? So basically, when patients taking the active pills, they're not menstruating, but the minute or the second they start taking the placebo pills, that's when the menstruation starts. And I understand that with in the case of loestrin or ethanolestradiol norethindrone, that uh, this is unique, that a 24-day cycle is not the norm. Is that correct? That's correct. Usually, you're thinking of like a three-week, 21 days, and then seven days would be your menstruation cycle time. So what kind of side effects do we see with uh, loestrin FE? So because there are hormones, um, the most common side effect is nausea. And other hormonal symptoms that I kind of think of might be things like breast tenderness or weight gain and potentially breakthrough spotting or bleeding. And just a second ago, you guys told me that with other estrogens, we have to worry about blood clots and heart attacks and strokes. Do we have to worry about that with loestrin as well? Absolutely. It is considered more rare, but that's when you hear on those commercials, if you're over the age of 35 and you're smoking and you're taking these birth control, you're at increased risk. Well, that's exactly what they're saying it for. In addition to this, your blood is more prone to clots. And so that's, again, that PE, DVT, MI, stroke, things of that sort. And those women over 35-year-old who smoke or patients with previous uh, clots, or patients with breast cancer probably shouldn't take this drug, and it's actually contraindicated. So why would it matter with breast cancer? Well, the way I understand it is many breast cancers are estrogen-dependent, and so we can actually be feeding the cancer if we're giving an estrogen product. So when you guys uh, dispense a product like ethanolestradiol, norethindrone, or loestrin FE, what are some of the counseling points that you give patients? I think the first and foremost thing to stress, like we said, um, they are only 98% effective, even if they're taken, as it says on the FDA-approved label, we want to ask patients to take them every day at the same time of the day. And if the patient misses the dose, is there a standard answer that we can tell them on what to do? Unfortunately, when you're looking at all these different birth controls, usually they have their own way of doing things. Uh, if you miss, if you like vomit or things that sort, and you missed your dose since less than three hours from when you took it, you could try to take the next pack. But 
it's better if you read the package insert and if you have a patient population that maybe struggles with following those directions to say anytime you forget a dose, go ahead and call your pharmacist or healthcare provider and they can jump into that package insert. I actually have a story, a quick story about this. This was a patient. She came in. She was pregnant. She was irate with us at my retail store and we found out that she was actually inserting the oral tablets vaginally. And she thought that would work, that they would just dissolve and prevent pregnancy that way. So to her, it wasn't intuitive that the, that the tablet should be swallowed. So just realize, again, pay attention to who your patients are. Make sure you explain everything to everyone. So moving right along, the next agent on our list is ethanyl estradiol. Hey, we've heard of that one. But instead, it's combined with norgestrel in a birth control product called overall or low overall. What's the difference here? So there's really not a lot of difference. One is that the androgen component, the norgestrel, is more androgenic than our previous product that we discussed. So that means maybe a little bit more acne and then some dyslipidemia problems like a higher LDL, which is the the bad cholesterol, or a lower HDL, or even some hirsutism or male pattern growth of hair. And unlike the low estrogen we discussed earlier, this combination comes into the 28-day um, pack, which um, then turns into 21 days of active and 7 days of um, placebo pills. And how many days of this one uh, are iron? None. So you'll notice in the name it does not have that FE. So this one you know is a non-iron containing product. So moving on to the next product, it's a final estradiol, the same estrogen we've had in our past two products, but uh, instead it's combined with etanogestrel, and the, the brand name is Nuvarin. Now I've heard from my patients that that ring is really big and hard to swallow. Dr. Weatherton, please inform your patients that this ring won't be swallowed, but they will actually insert it vaginally to be used as a contraceptive. Oh, that makes sense. I bet it's more effective than taking pills, right? There's no data to support that it's more effective or least effective. And it also has the same adverse effect profile that we saw, specifically looking at nausea and then some of the more rare but serious side effects like blood clots. And so like I said, um, this product is inserted vaginally. One ring will be kept inserted for three weeks. And then after three weeks, you remove it for one week. And when you remove it, that's when the females will have the menstruation. That seems like it might be easier to remember for patients who have compliance issues with a daily pill, right? It can be, but for some patients, it can also work in the opposite sense. It's Sometimes it's easy to do the same thing every single day, but it's hard to remember at three weeks to take something out. So just be aware for certain populations who this might be good for. So does this ring work by blocking any you know sperm or anything like that? No, Dr. Kane. The sperm can swim right through the ring. However, because of the hormones, the chances of pregnancy are reduced in the same mechanism of action as the oral contraceptives. Seems like it might be easy for this to fall out or be dislodged in some way. Is that ever a concern? If it ever falls out, um, you ask patient to rinse it and put it back um, within three hours and then follow the same schedule um, of three weeks in, one week out. Is this something that has to be put in by a healthcare provider, or it seems like you'd have to get the position pretty accurate? So the exact position, again, doesn't matter because it's the hormone that's um, bleaching out of the ring that's affecting the contraception. So the exact position doesn't matter. Um, You teach the patient in the clinic once how to insert it, and after that, they're self-capable of doing it. 
I bet this is even more effective if you use it with a cervical diaphragm, right? That way you're blocking things from multiple angles. So like I said, the exact position of the ring doesn't matter, but if you're if the female is using diaphragm on, on top of using the nuva ring, then it interferes with the placement, and you don't want to do that. Now, once this ring is used, um, is it okay to just flush it? No. And I think the reason behind not to flush it down the toilet, because it can't still contain some amount of uh, hormone, and we don't want to contaminate our water system with those hormones. Yeah, we certainly don't want our fish swimming around with mood swings and, and tender breasts. Uh, I want to ask our resident female anatomy expert here, Dr. Kane, about this next point. In the package insert, it says to ensure proper vaginal placement of the ring to avoid inadvertent urinary bladder insertion. Well, Dr. Weatherton, there's actually been a few case reports of women inserting the nuva ring in the urinary bladder, and they've actually had to use a cystoscope to remove it. Um, so in very rare circumstances, patients may not understand the proper placement of the nuva ring. And actually, in the package insert, it states that healthcare providers should assess for ring insertion into the urinary bladder if in nuva ring users who present with persistent urinary symptoms and are unable to locate the ring. So with that said, our next method of contraception is actually fairly foolproof. So this is medroxyprogesterone. The brand name is Depo-Provera. And how is this one administered? So like the name says Depo, it creates a Depo under um, in the muscle and releases the active medication over the time. So this medication is given intramuscularly and it's a sustained release injection and used for contraception. Sustained release? How long does it last? It will last for three months, so the patient will need to get one injection every three months. So because they do it in a doctor's office, I'd imagine that it's easier to maintain an adequate schedule and you don't have a lot of compliance issues because patients have to make an appointment and then show up for it. That is correct. So does this agent need to be injected into a muscle in or around the female reproductive area? Absolutely not. You can treat it like any other IM injection. It can be shot into the arms or other muscles. So it is important to note that although medroxyprogesterone or Depo-Provera is approved for contraception, it has a number of other indications that it is approved for that are kind of beyond the scope of this podcast. So I understand it goes intramuscular and there's a subcutaneous injection as well, right? Yeah, that's something new. The Sub-Q products came out. The brand name is Depo-Sub-Q-Provera. 104, so the dose is 104 milligram instead of 150 milligrams with the IM injection. And medroxyprogesterone, this is one of the first ones that we've seen that doesn't contain ethanyl estradiol. So what's the estrogen component of medroxyprogesterone? There is none. What? True dog. Dr. Kane, tell us a little bit about it. So actually, we don't need the estrogen component with progesterone. Progesterone-only oral tablets have a higher rate of failure because they have to be taken very, very consistently. So when we give an IM injection, we don't have to worry as much about that. With that said, because we don't have an estrogen component, we have other issues and some benefits that we don't have with our oral contraceptive. Without the estrogen, we have a lower libido and potentially more acne in patients who receive Depo-Provera or medroxyprogesterone. The benefit, though, is that the risk of venous thromboembolism, MI, or stroke isn't as high as it is with the estrogen-containing products, but still, this does contain a boxed warning about the risk for uh, blood clots. So, are there many drug interactions with this agent? This reminds me of a lecture you just gave recently. It's funny. I did give a lecture about estrogen and uh, some of the interactions with 
those products. So unlike our estrogen products, medraxiprogesterone has very minimal drug interactions, and it's actually fairly safe to use with our antiepileptics as an example. So I understand that progesterone can affect bone mineral density. Is that right? Yes, actually that is true, and it also carries a boxed warning for it. Uh, what other sort of side effects can patients expect? So patients may experience baking, um, edema, and again, the weight can be associated with all the water, water weight from edema. Patients may have um, heavy bleeding at the initiation, and then um, sometimes will also have amenorrhea, which is basically no menses. So there could be some um, irregularities in mens- uh, menstrual cycle. And another thing to keep in mind is once they are stopped um, using the medroxyprogesterone, it takes about as long as a year for the fertility to return. So even though the product is only good for three months and you have to repeat the injections every three months, once stopping, the contraceptive effect lingers. So patients really need to plan ahead when they want to conceive. Correct. So our next agent is a little bit different. This one's called raloxifene, and the brand name is Avista. What is raloxifene, Dr. Petty? It is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, or you can abbreviate that, let's call it a CERM. Well, how does that work? It binds to the selective estrogen binding sites and blocks estrogen from those, and such as the breast and uterine tissues, and it acts like an estrogen to prevent bone loss. So it decreases that bone resorption, increases bone mineral density, decreases fracture incidence, so it's really good to kind of bulk up the bones. So is this agent uh, contraceptive? What is it used for? Well, since it blocks estrogen at the breast tissue, it can be used to decrease the risk of breast cancer, recurrent breast cancer. But since it acts like estrogen at the bone, estrogen is actually protective of the bone. And so it can be used for osteoporosis in women. This isn't an agent to use for osteoporosis in men. Correct. So this is used as both prevention and treatment for osteoporosis in particularly postmenopausal women. So I understand this is sort of like estrogen. Does it have any similar side effects? Yes. Yeah, so because it has selectivities at certain estrogen receptors, it still has um, side effects of increased risk of thromboembolism, um, peripheral edema, um, chest weight gain, chest pain, abdominal pain, and vomiting um, also carry forward from those oral contraceptives. Because we are depriving some of these estrogen receptors from estrogen, people might feel the estrogen withdrawal type of symptoms such as hot flashes, insomnia, muscle pain, arthralgias, also irregular menses. So we mentioned some of the thromboembolic disorders that we saw also with our oral contraceptives. Are there any other contraindications or warnings that we should know about raloxifene or Avista? Yeah, patients who have had blood clots in the past should not take raloxifene. And uh, there may be an increased risk of stroke death in women with existing coronary artery disease or women with high risk for CAD. And that's another boxed warning. So the next drug is tamoxifen, which is also a CERM, a selective estrogen receptor modulator. Does it work in the same way as raloxifene? The mechanism is just slightly different. So it competitively binds to the estrogen receptors in the tumors and tissue targets, mainly in breast and uterine, uterine tissues, and produces the nuclear complex that will decrease the DNA synthesis and will inhibit the estrogen effect. And so... In this cancerous cells, it's more of a cytostatic than cytosidal. What sort of cancers is this used for? It's used in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer, uh, both female and male. 
And it is also used in adjuvant treatment of breast cancer, meaning there are other cancer treatments going on along with tamoxifen and used as a prevention or it's used for the risk reduction of the breast cancer as well. So I would expect that our adverse effect profile should be pretty similar to what we saw with raloxifene or Evista, right? Yeah, and you can kind of think of it as being similar to menopause. So folks may experience hot flashes or flushing, mood changes, depression, and changes in their menstrual periods. And other generalized symptoms such as those GI, nausea, vomiting, or um, those arthritis or generalized muscle pain are still there. The two interesting side effects I wanted to mention um, is thrombocytopenia or leukopenia. However, this is rare. And patients can also experience vision change. So there is reports of reduced acuity, um, retinal vein thrombosis even, retinopathy, cataracts um, have reported. So what kind of patients shouldn't take tamoxifen? So just like raloxifen, if the patient has or had DVT or PE, this product is contraindicated. Also, patients who are on warfarin therapy, this medication is um, contraindicated. So moving on to over-the-counter products, the first is myconazole, and the brand name is Monostat Vaginal. I remember we talked about myconazole in the past for, like, tinea pedis and athlete's foot. So is it also used for a similar thing intravaginally? So the topical product definitely is used for uh, any tinea skin infection, and the vaginal products are used for any vaginal yeast infection. And is it okay to just use the topical spray or something intravaginally? It would probably get the job done, but there's other products that would be more appropriate for a vaginal administration. Such as? So we actually have a vaginal cream and a vaginal suppository form of myconazole. And how um, are the vaginal products applied or taken or used? There's three different types of myconazole. One is a low dose, so either a low concentration or a low milligram dose of the suppository. And you have to use that for seven days. There's a higher dose, which is basically double the dose or double the concentration that can be used for three days. And then there's a gigantic dose that is a one-time dose that takes care of the infection with that one dose. And the nice thing about these products is you don't have to memorize these milligrams and days right on the box. It'll say one day, three days, five days, seven days. So just kind of look out for that. Do you expect any common side effects with these products, Dr. Petty? You would expect burning and itching at the site of application, which is unfortunate because that's usually what brings you in to get these products. So the next product family that we're talking about is actually one of my favorites because it's such a marketing scheme. It's just genius. This is the Midol family of products. And what are those used for? So all of them are marketed as temporary relief of menstrual symptoms, but they have a couple different types of products that they market with different subheadings for the Midol brand. So like break them down. So there's the product called the Complete, Complete Product, and so that has a few different active ingredients involved. So it has your APAPs, your Tylenol, caffeine, and pyrolamine, which is one of those first-generation antihistamines. So what type of side effects are we thinking with that? Sedation. Dry eyes. Dry mouth. And others. So do these products have a lot of caffeine in them? They have a fair amount, probably about the amount you would get in one of your soft drinks. The 60 milligrams, which should help relieve the bloating and also the fatigue. And then do these have a lot of Tylenol in them? Yeah, they actually have the maximum amount of Tylenol that a patient should take per dose, per the recent FDA recommendations, and that's 500 milligrams. 
So we've got a pain reliever, caffeine to help with bloating and fatigue, and then an antihistamine allegedly to help with any swelling from water retention. The next four are one of my favorites because they're absolutely ridiculous and they're strictly marketing schemes to get women to buy their product. All right, let's hear it, Dr. Kane. What are they? So the first one is called Midol Long Acting. You know what it has in it? What? Naproxen or Leaf. But to the average consumer, they see the Midol product line and then they think, oh, it's the long acting version. I need something to last 12 hours. But really, they could just get Naproxen generic and spend a lot less money. That's a great point. So then what is Midol Teen? So Midol Teen, of course, is acetaminophen again and Pamabrome, which is a diuretic, but it doesn't contain caffeine, I guess because people don't want their teens to stay up late. So another scam. What's the next one on the list? Liquid gels. And what product is that made out of? Ibuprofen. Good old Advil. And then the last one is Midol PM, which is just Tylenol PM, acetaminophen with diphenhydramine, and that's it. So Midol products marketed for PMS, often just other stuff. P-M-S. P-M-S. And the last over-the-counter product we're going to talk is phenazopyridine, and it's sold as azo standard. So I've heard of phenazopyridine. It's for UTIs, and it cures them, right? No, it's not a curative agent. It's just for symptomatic relief. What it is good for, though, is giving to a friend, telling them it's Tylenol, and then three hours later having them panic when they have orange or red fluorescent urine. Wish to stain your clothes. <laughs> not from experience. Does it have any antibacterial properties? Well, it must. It's used for UTIs. But it's not used to treat. So it has absolutely zero antibacterial effect. So it's good for symptomatic relief in conjunction with an antibiotic, but it really should only be used for one or two days until the antibiotic is starting to kick in. So it can be dangerous for people to use this product because they can delay their therapy. Absolutely, especially over-the-counter use. So what you're saying is it doesn't cure UTIs. Sorry to burst your bubble, Dr. Rutherton, but it does not. The one last thing that I think is important for phenazoparidine or azo is that it is basically a dye. And uh, for certain types of urine tests, like urine glucose or urine ketones, that dye can interfere with uh, those testing products and make them inaccurate. All right, so to review the drugs that we discussed this week, the first was conjugated estrogens, and we had two brand names. One was Premarin, the other was Cinestin. The next agent on the list was ethanyl estradiol combined with norethindrone and sometimes iron in the loestrin FE and other loestrin products. The third product on the list was, again, ethanyl estradiol, however, but the different component of norgestrol. The brand names are available under many different products, mainly overall or low overall. Next, we talk about the NuvaRing, and that generically is ethanyl estradiol and etanogestrol. Then we talked about the IM injection Depo-Provera under the generic name of Medroxyprogesterone. The next agent on the list was definitely not a sperm. It was a CIRM, and it's Riloxifene or Avista. The cousin of Riloxifene was Tamoxifene, and it's been out in the market for so long, hey, I don't even know its brand name. And then we hit the over-the-counter products for urinary health. And then we have the myconazole, but more commonly known as the monostat products. Then we talked about the brainchild of some marketing genius, the Midol products, which contain a variety of different ingredients depending on the subproduct that you're looking at. 
And finally, much to my chagrin, the agent which does not cure a UTI, phenazopyridine or azo. So that concludes week 10 and the final podcast of the spring edition of Roslyn Franklin University's Top 200 Drugs podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Weatherton. I'm Dr. Patel. And Dr. Petty. Study hard! This has been an educational production by the Roslyn Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast is copyright Roslyn Franklin University of Medicine and Science. No participants have any conflicts of interest to disclose. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to treat a particular patient. This information should not be used in lieu of the judgment of a healthcare provider. The theme music for this podcast is an excerpt of Metro Mix by Cecil, released under Creative Commons.